You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Sowing the seeds of cannabis and sounding the praise of our favorite plants, it's time to Hemp Resent. Our radio resident Hempo Sapien Vivian McPeak will present a weekly platform for guests and listeners to Hemp Resent about hemp and cannabis from the legal, activist, and reformist route. Let's round up and roll it up for our headmaster of hemp, Vivian McPeak. Present weekly radio show where you can get your PhD in THC because you don't just want to burn it, you want to learn it. Seeking to defeat prohibition one interview at a time, join me for a weekly reefer radio rebellion against prohibition as I speak with some of the principal risk takers, movers, and shakers, and history makers of the cannabis industry, culture, and reform movement and beyond. I'm your host, Vivian McPeak. I am the executive director of the world's largest annual cannabis policy reform event, the Seattle Hemp Fest, celebrating its 25th anniversary and found at hempfest.org. I'm also the author of the book Protestable, a 20 year retrospective of Seattle Hemp Fest from AHA Publishing, also found at hempfest.org. Transmitting from a hempcrete fortified bunker under a ramshackle reefer radio warren at an undisclosed location deep within the rumbling bowels of underground Seattle, my goal is to spread the green flame of 420 truth in 30-minute increments. Today's guest on Hempresent is former Seattle City Council member Nick Licata, who will be joining me in about 120 seconds. The human condition is such that throughout recorded history, ordinary people have been required to go to extraordinary lengths to secure their freedom and pursue a quest for justice. Well before the word activism showed up in the English language, there were struggles waged by people of all walks of life to influence the condition of their lives and to defend against that which was perceived as unfair and inhumane. Just about every freedom and many of the simple pleasures that we enjoy and take for granted in our daily lives were won in hard scrabble struggles against formidable forces fought and scrapped for by people who were hell-bent for a better world. Those mostly unseen efforts to influence social, political, economic, or environmental change have greatly molded the societies that we live in today, feeling the need to turn to agitation and civil disobedience and protesting in the forms of boycotts, divestment, tax resistance, marches, rallies, sit-ins, die-ins, blockades, or employing music and the arts through song or street theater. Ordinary human beings have realized that they have the right not to remain silent in the face of gross injustice and inhumanity. Some have raised their voices others their fists. 
as more often than not, the future of a nation has been determined in its streets. The dissidents and demonstrators, the whistleblowers and agitators, who've placed themselves at the tip of the spear in the forward thrust to advance equality, liberty, and social justice, deserve our highest praise and undying respect. And we cannot forget the armchair warrior in the form of the homebound activist who utilizes the letter, the phone, or the internet to wage their advocacy, or the economic activist who votes for their dollar, each purchase a declaration of an investment in their values. And blessed is the nonviolent activist who uses the alchemy of ideas and the science of strategy to enact social change with nary a bullet or a blow. Without them all, we'd still be living in a world without much sense of human rights or egalitarianism because there will always be someone who comes along with the intent to persecute, subjugate, or exploit at the cost of others, most often the weak, the vulnerable, and the defenseless. We should look and listen when our community activists speak because their voices often speak for the voiceless. If we are ever to live in a society where unarmed truth and unconditional love are shared common values, we will need to invest more social capital in those willing to be the active advocates in our communities. And when I think of a community activist, the first person that comes to my mind is Nick Licata, and I'm so fortunate to have him in the virtual studio with me today. Nick is a founding board member of the Capitol Hill Improve Housing Improvement Program. He helped found the Coalition Against Redlining in Seattle. In 83, Licata co-founded Give Peace a Dance. He was the co-chair of Citizens for More Important Things, a group opposed to excessive public funding for professional sports stadiums. Nick is the founding chair of Local Progress, a nationwide organization of progressive local officials. And the Nation's Magazine's progressive honor roll of 2012 chose Lakata as its most valuable local official in the United States. Nick served for many years on the Seattle City Council, several years as council president, and he was by far the most popular city council in the city's history. Welcome, Nick, to Hemp Present. Thank you for a glorious introduction, my gosh. Well, I had to cut it about one-third of what it originally was, Nick, because I didn't have enough time to list all the amazing <laughs> things you've done. I, I want to start just by saying that if I ever grow up, which is highly questionable, I want to be just like you, Nick. I'm, just, I'm so thankful for the tremendous impact you've personally had on this beautiful, unique city of Seattle. Well, you know, I, I think we all go through a stage of, of growing up, and hopefully we never reach the end point until we kill over. <laughs> I think life is part of always growing. Yes, yes. You are the author of a children's fantasy adventure book. You founded a gazillion organizations and initiatives. You seem to be involved in every social environmental cause. And then now, after serving on the city council for many years, you got a brand new book, which I want to talk about next. Nick, how do you do it? Are you a Bikram yoga guy? Do you have, like, no vices or social life? Do you drink yerba mate? I mean, what's the catalyst that keeps <laughs> your cre creative juices flowing so relentlessly? Uh, well, I do like yoga mate, although I haven't had it for a while. I've, I've, turned, up to, I've turned more <laughs> towards rooibos, which is another great drink, by the way. Hey, you know, it's funny. It's not like I set out to have a game plan and like, oh, man, I'm just going to become an activist. And I don't know how many people actually do that. It was just one of the things I just fell into. And, and one of the things I, I talk about in the book, actually, is, you know, there are certain moments in each of our lives when, like, a little light bulb goes on. So, Aha, you know, this is how things work. And one of the earliest moments, actually, was when I was, like, in third grade in the playground in the Sisters of Assumption, and there were this group of boys running around jumping on, basically, the kids that were either too fat or too thin or too slow, and they were just, like, piling on him and then move on to the next kid. I remember thinking to myself, I could be one of those kids that pile on, and this is not right. So I went up to the nun who was in charge of the playground and said, hey, you know, you got to stop this from happening. She looked out, looked over the scene, saw this group going around, jumping on kids, and she looked at me and she said, just 
mind your own business. I walked off. <laughs> <laughs> and I realized, I realized, man, you got to be organized if you want to survive. <laughs> <laughs> you have a brand new book out, Becoming a Citizen Activist, Stories, Strategies, and Advice for Changing Our World that was released just this month. What do you want people to take away from that work, and how does it speak to our current condition of our society? Well, the basic theme that runs through it is that it's great to be passionate. It's great to actually push the issues, but you got to think strategically, and you also have to realize that victories don't happen overnight. I use the example, for instance, the two examples in Washington State in 2012. Washington State became, I think, the first or second state to legalize same-sex marriage and legalize recreational marijuana. But both of those took decades of organizing, took very slow process. My connection with the area of legalized marijuana actually was very personal. I was very active in the anti-war movement in the 60s and 70s, and I saw how government used drug enforcement literally selectively to put people into jail. I had two of my closest friends go to jail for a year with just literally having one joint between them. And the same thing went on for years and years for oppression, quite honestly, the African-American youth in communities to keep them under control. So what happens is that there are some real legitimate concerns, certainly about excessive use of drugs that might affect your health, but they don't see it as a health problem. They saw it as an enforcement problem. And that's often what happens is that the authorities will use an excuse to keep those people who are asking hard questions and who want to have the our democracy respond in an accountable, responsible fashion. And that's what really got me. Is like I just feel like, you know, we do live in an amazing country, amazing society. We believe in democracy, but it only lives, it only survives, it's only functional to the extent that the people in the democracy realize that they're citizens and they should have and must have the authority to direct it. Speaking of legal marijuana, the Emerald City is a lot greener today than it was when you became Seattle City Council member in 98. Uh, What was it like being on the city council of a large metropolis at a time when first pot dispensaries and then recreational marijuana stores started popping up like Starbucks? What were some of the concerns or challenges that were discussed in the council chambers as cannabis legalization started to take hold? Well, I would say that, first of all, there's nine council members. The council members were a little stunned by what was going on. I would say on one hand, they were sort of sympathetic, certainly to the needs of people who needed to have relief from pain, particularly from marijuana. Some of the council members after you had relatives. So there was some sort of sympathetic factor there. There was also an ongoing, as always happens with elected officials, feeling that they didn't want to appear to be too supportive of the movement that they saw was fringe. And as a result, even though I think many of them in their sort of heart or their mind knew that this was a direction that made sense and was a direction to go in, they were very, very reluctant to show any kind of verbal or visible support. And they were, I would say in many instances, dragging their feet because they felt that they didn't want to be a target for law enforcement groups that were seen as being weak on crime. Subject's been a really traditionally a political hot potato forever. Oh, totally, very hot potato. And of course, some people use it purposely to get reelected. Although it didn't happen in Seattle, but many other cities, that is the case. Here in the city of Seattle, there's a big focus on preventing the public use of cannabis. Why is that? What do you think the overarching concerns are about the use of cannabis in public? Well, I guess twofold. One is 
ties back into the other thing I was saying that I think there's a recognition amongst many elected officials that Seattle is in the forefront, both medical marijuana and now, you know, recreational cannabis use. But I would say that for a long time, and it's turning around recently, the concern was that the feds would move in and use blatant disregard. The memo or what have you, right? Yeah, that, you know, they would then bring down the entire tent. Now, I don't think necessarily that was used in a way as an excuse. I think it was a, a real fear, although I'm not sure it was necessarily a legitimate fear in that the government hasn't shown to, to actually take that sort of position, sometimes in California, from what I understand, but not overall in the state. And also, I, there is some concern, too, that we don't know who the next president's going to be. We don't know if it's going to end up being you know, a reverse course, which could happen nationally. Right. Hopefully, there's enough momentum right now that whoever gets in office would find it too difficult to change course. So anyhow, I think that's a large part of the concern about engaging in you know, recreational cannabis, smoking it in public. I see that gradually melting away. I don't think it's going to change overnight. And I do know that legislation was introduced just recently with uh, our city attorney, Pete Holmes, and the mayor, Ed Murray, endorsing off on having delivery legalized. And I have worked with the city attorney for a while trying to get legalized, basically what would be called cannabis cafes, right? Yeah. That sort, which I think are really needed because a lot of people can't smoke in their apartments or apartment buildings and things of that sort. Also, there's people coming to Seattle who, you know, for many reasons want to come here, one of which may be even enjoy cannabis smoking, and where do they go? So, to me, that makes sense. And I had tried pushing it through our health board and met some resistance, but I think this is the year that we should get it passed. I am speaking with Nick Licata on Hempresent on Cannabis Radio. We're going to take a quick pause for the cause because there's flaws in the laws. We're just getting started. I'm going to come right back with Nick Licata, so don't go anywhere. Time to roll out for the people that let us Hempresent. Hang loose. We're coming right back. Dr. Dabber, hurry. Its temperature is shooting past 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. It's burning up. I'm afraid for this little guy, it's just too late. What caused the problem? Only Dr. Dabber can maintain the perfect temperature for a smooth-tasting, slower burn. This standard vaporizer lost all of its health benefits, sending it up in smoke. So you're telling me that most vapor pens burn so hot they produce smoke, not vapor? Correct. Keep away from those standard vaporizer pens and turn to Dr. Dabber, doctor's order. Less heat, more flavor. Gondrepreneur.com, your guide to the cannabis business world. Gondrepreneur.com is a comprehensive resource for cannabis professionals and entrepreneurs. Download the Gondrepreneur app on your smartphone or tablet to catch up on cannabis industry news, scroll through our daily job listings, and learn about successful cannabis companies, executives, and investors. Gondrepreneur.com, helping Gondrepreneurs grow. Chronicling the latest cannabis industry news and headlines. Well, with four states with tax and regulate and the District of Columbia. The state of cannabis. Oh, my God, it's refreshing. We have people that generally wouldn't speak on behalf of cannabis for fear of retribution, fear of losing your practices, fear of of many of those things, and and find ourselves in in a a place that we finally can. Bringing you fact-based news and views and keeping listeners on the pulse of what's happening in the industry today. The State of Cannabis. On demand anytime, only on CannabisRadio.com. We're back to 
to Hemp Presents, only on Cannabis Radio. Now, back to our headstrong emperor of hemp, Vivian McPeak. And we're back on Hemp Present on Cannabis Radio with Nick Licata. Nick, in an interview with Seattle Gay News, you said that you were interested in organizing a national network to coordinate what you call an urban progressive renaissance. What would an urban progressive renaissance consist of? Well, I think we've already begun the process. You know, Seattle, although we didn't pass the first paid sick leave urban legislation, we were probably the second or third, but ours was definitely the most thorough. And when we did it, other cities followed. I know Philadelphia and a number of other cities on the East Coast and and, uh, some of the Midwest started passing legislation based on our model. And then, after that, we passed minimum wage for $15 an hour. Again, we weren't the first to pass minimum wage increase, but we were the first to go to $15 an hour. And that really had a major impact. Again, cities like New York City, Los Angeles started to follow suit. And then most recently, in Tacoma and Spokane, cities in our state raised the minimum wage directly as a result of what they saw was possible in Seattle. So the renaissance I see happening is that the urban population, the major metropolitan areas, which contain, depending how you measure it, anywhere from a quarter to 40% of the population in the U.S., I believe have the ability to organize those folks who really see how government can benefit people if it has proper direction from the population. And I see the renaissance resulting in more social justice. I see it in reduction of racial inequality. And I see it, quite honestly, as a way of promoting just and fair economic growth that doesn't have the impacts of gentrification. Nick, the ultimate red-hot poker in the eye of the 99%, Donald Trump, is leading all the Republican polls, and the self-proclaimed Democratic Socialist Bernie Sanders, a poker in the eye of the 1%, appears to also be leading in some states. What do you make of this political cycle? What's going on in American politics that we can have such counterintuitive, non-traditional, and even polarizing leading candidates? I think the common characteristic that both Sanders and Trump share that people see in them a certain sense of being real and being, in particular, anti-establishment. My brother, who is a, I would say, very, very conservative folks, in fact, he thinks that the Republican Party is not conservative enough, is a Trump supporter. And I said, well, what do you think of the Democratic side? And he surprised me. He said, well, he doesn't like Hillary at all. He's sort of like Sanders, but the biggest problem he had with Sanders is that he didn't criticize Clinton, Hillary Clinton enough on how close she was to the establishment, which I've heard from the left. So in some ways, they both are tapping into this real frustration, this anger, this anxiety about where the country's going and that the country is being led or following the instructions, the directions those people have the power and money that most people don't have. Last year when Bernie Sanders was speaking in Seattle at Westlake Park, members of the Black Lives Matter organization pretty much commandeered the microphone and the rally. Uh, Even though Bernie Sanders appears the most likely candidate to support their cause, what are your thoughts on that? Did that help or hurt their cause, or is it just infinitely more complicated than that? Well, it's more complicated than that. But I would say that there will always continue to be people who are so angry that they will disturb and upset 
the protocol, whether it's someone giving a speech or marching through a store or blocking traffic. Historically, it's happened throughout our history and even before in other countries. Those events will happen. I myself don't generally participate in those kinds of events because I think there's other ways of accomplishing something. But I recognize, I recognize the legitimacy of their concerns. And I think that to a certain extent, those kinds of, I'll call them outbursts, actually do generate a lot of discussion, a lot of positive discussion, and they do move people more towards taking action to resolve the problems because people feel uncomfortable when things are disturbed. Feel, people feel somewhat threatened. And to relieve that threat, I think they actually become more conscious of the problem and try to solve it. Well, I wouldn't have engaged in that. I do recognize that it was a legitimate expression, and I realize it also does have some positive impact. I have so many questions for you in such little time. I just want to keep racing forward. I could talk to you for hours, Nick. There's a mental image that haunts my mindscape, and it's a vision of Seattle in 25 or 30 years, seven stories high, mixed-use, gentrified, unaffordable, no parking, gridlock traffic, and a ghost of a community-based art scene. What should Seattleites be concerned about in regard to development and gentrification in the world's fastest-growing city? I think that citizens are already concerned about those impacts, everything from congestion to the lack of affordable housing to being pushed out of the city they, they grew up in, and seeing their children being pushed out so they're forced to commute, you know, at a minimum sometimes an hour each way. We have the tools to address those developments so that they do provide more affordable housing. They, they do recognize the need of working people who live in the city and be able to get to work through public transit. But the council and the mayors have been very reluctant to use those tools. They get a little bit wonky here, but some of those tools, for instance, involve a thing called inclusionary zoning, which basically means if a developer puts a new building up, they have to devote a percent of the residential units to affordable housing, and Seattle is behind the curve on that. Many cities our size require between 10 and 15 percent. In Seattle, we're less than 5 percent. Or if they put up a commercial building, they need to devote money to the impact that that commercial building is going to have, which could go towards affordable housing or more open space. We know what those tools are. We've been doing studies on them, and we still basically, the majority lacks, I believe, the nerve to go ahead and put them into effect. They're concerned about pushback by the people that they have most contact with, which are very nice people, but the majority of them tend to be the developers or people who basically benefit from the growth going on in the city, financially benefit. I think that there's a good chance that if we continue to organize and put pressure on the council, and this is true for every city, that they will respond. But again, you have to be systematic about it. You have to be strategic about it, and you have to not give up. Great job of answering a question that could have taken hours to answer. I, it was almost an unfair question to ask. In an article that you had published in Communities Magazine called Every Politician Should Live in a Commune, you wrote, elected legislative bodies are unintentional communities, whereas housing collectives and co-ops are intentional communities. And after living in a collective for 25 years, I recommend that anyone joining a city council, state legislature, or Congress strongly consider living in an intentional community before entering the political fray. What did you mean by suggesting that elected officials should experience living in a collective environment? Why is that? Well, having gone through 
more than 25 years of consensus meetings, and, and we followed the real definition of consensus. Everyone had to agree, or we didn't do anything. It took us a year and a half to decide whether we wanted to buy a TV for the house, for instance, <laughs> <laughs> or add a second phone. So, you know, these were <laughs> basic decisions that we had to discuss once a week and reach a conclusion. So it taught two things. One, quite honestly, be very open about your conflict, you know. We had to basically get down and say what you believed and what you didn't believe and not be afraid of it. I think that's important. Second, you realize if you're going to get something done, you've got to convince other people that it's in their interest as well because you're living with them in the commune. And to a certain extent, the same thing extends to a legislative branch. You're living in the same city. You represent, in grand sense, the same community. So it really teaches you negotiation skills and how to deal with people that you have conflict with in a way to bring them over to your side. It's as simple as that. I've got two minutes to break, so quickly. We appear to be on the beginning of a transition away from some of the policies of the war on drugs, but the militarization of our law enforcement department, somewhat a byproduct of those policies, remains stronger than ever. Have we allowed our community police forces to become overly militarized? And if so, can we do anything about it? I would say currently that's true, but I also would point out that there's an ebb and flow of militarization of our local police force. I think it grows somewhat out of the fear people have, and part of the fear that people have is a result of the economic strategies that the country as a nation has followed, and also many of the states that are now literally controlled by the right wing. And those policies are ones that say, let the market determine our living conditions rather than let our democracy function so that our government can, in fact, create an environment which people have the liberty to grow up without poverty or racial prejudice. That's what we need to have happen. I am speaking with Nick Licata on Hempresent on Cannabis Radio. We are going to take another quick break, listen to some words from our sponsors, and come right back for our closing questions. So stay with us. Time to roll out for the people that let us Hempresent. Hang loose. We're coming right back. The next generation of vaporizers has arrived. Vuber vaporizers are blazing the way with unparalleled technology for oil, concentrate, or dry flower pens. Providing unsurpassed customer service and expert craftsmanship, Vuber vaporizers use cutting-edge technology, providing a power-packed, smoother vapor with a lifetime guarantee. Experience vaporizing the way it was meant to be. The Vuber way. Are you paying too much for your paid advertising? Or have you quit altogether because it seemed like a huge waste of money? I'm David Ogletree, president of WME Training. Did you know that companies waste 25% of their PPC spend on average? At WME Training, we can show you how to make your AdWords account a lean, mean, converting machine. Whether you're just starting out or want to take your skills to the next level, we have a class for you. Contact the marketing experts at WMETraining.com. Cannabis Confidential with Dr. Dina. Candid. I want to give you the inside story. Captivating. I want to introduce you to my kind and amazingly talented friends. Compelling. We get to meet some of the most amazing cannabis activists and warriors around. Listen in as medical marijuana pioneer Dr. Dina shares never-before-heard stories, chats with cannabis insiders and celebrity friends, 
and provides invaluable perspective and insight into one of the fastest growing industries in the world. I want to share with you what was once confidential information. Let's expose the truth, discuss the issues, and learn the facts. Cannabis Confidential, only on CannabisRadio.com. We're back to Hemp Presents, only on Cannabis Radio. Now, back to our headstrong emperor of hemp, Vivian McPeak. We're back on Hemp Present with Nick Licata. Nick, you founded and published the People's Yellow Pages in the mid-1970s, which listed community and political groups and social and public services in Seattle. And then a few years later, you published the alternative weekly, The Seattle Sun. Seattle was a really different place back then. What were those days like for you? Can you paint a quick picture for us? Well, I arrived in Seattle in the 70s. So again, it was, you know, the 60s culture actually went on probably to the mid-70s. And so there were a lot of actually a lot of cooperative or collective small businesses. We At one time, I counted up something like 12 of them. You know, several restaurants, there was even a collective accounting firm, there was a collective law firm, there's a warehouse. Almost all of those are gone, but they did leave a legacy, I would say, of introducing new products as well as introducing sort of more sort of worker involvement. Unfortunately, not on the scale that we've seen, for instance, overseas in Spain and some of the cities there where they actually have workers on the boards of their organizations. But in Seattle, I, at that time, as it's like many places in the country, it was an area of trans, a period of transition where we were going from anti-government to where the, once the Vietnam War ended, a lot of steam went out of the movement, actually, even though in some ways it was a victory. It was a very drawn-out one. And I think people became a little more concerned with their own needs, and we lost some of the momentum. Not everyone, and I'd say many of the things that followed from that did reflect concerns closer to home rather than foreign policy issues. Well, Nick, my time's up. Thank you so much for all your great works and everything you've done. I know you've got a new book out. I encourage people to check that out, Becoming a Citizen Activist. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And so far, the book's reception has been really good. This is number one of the new release in the last four weeks on Amazon. Right on. Take care, Great. bro. Thank you. That okay, concludes this bye. installment of Hemp Present on Cannabis Radio. Email me at hemppresent at gmail.com. I'll give that email again in a few seconds. I do have my quote of the week, and it's this. You never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. And those are the words of the late American architect, systems theorist, R. Buckminster Foley. I want to thank my peeps, Hannah and Brasco, in the control room, all the Cannabis Radio advertising sponsors. Join me next week for some more reefer repartee and cannabis confabulation with some hippie here on a journey for justice, because when it comes to prohibition, you have the right not to remain silent. Activism requires a voice, so find yours to speak up for justice. It's because resistance is fertile. The Hemp Present theme song, Take Back the Plants, performed by Stickerbush, sung by a much younger version of myself. Turn up the music, maestro. I'm out. Marijuana. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited.
need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.